I'm Gary, and I play bass. I'm Tilt, and I play the drums. I'm Tyler, and I play the mouth organ. Very badly. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Jaffa Cakes of Proust. Before we Jaffa the Beatles, I do have something outstanding from last week. Remember I was talking about the music hall comedy routine where somebody interrupts a man who's trying to do the monologue, the green-eyed yellow idol on the thing in Kathmandu? Yes. Which I'd read, I think it was in a book of Stanley Holloway monologues. Nobody told me, but a few weeks ago, that was on BBC4 showing of the good old days with John Inman being the guy doing the interrupting. And I mean, it was... Word for word, if I recall correctly, what was in that script. I so, hope it was on the um, stage. Look to write, Charlie. I can't remember the guy's name. I was there citing this thing without mentioning that it had actually been seen by billions of people on BBC4. So, this week, it's in some ways a substrand of our examination. Examination, that's a $10 word. Us watching pop films. But also, it's a strand in itself. Jaffa, the Beatles, because we're going to bring our way of looking at things to this very, very popular cultural phenomenon. It occurred to me the other day, a way of describing uh, this podcast, that we have something of a pre-decimal mindset. Okay, so does that mean that on the running order for a future show, we're actually going to look at that decimalization film with, oh, what's her name? Doris Hare, the one that used to play on ITV every day. And the song by Max Bygraves. Anyway, let's put all that to one side. Can I just interject, by the way, before we get to the food and drink today, that recently we've been discussing What a Crazy World, and we've also discussed Live It Up. Both of those films are currently playing on Talking Pictures TV. Consult your local listings to find out the next screening. Gary, I'd like you to kick things off because you're possibly the most, and I don't mean this as a pejorative, you're possibly the most Beatle-ignorant of the three of us it's fine it's just the way the cards have fallen but it gives you a more interesting perspective on this so we've gone from those six pop films which is apparently enough to cover the entire world of british rock and roll to hard day's night it's a bit of a jump isn't it what is a bit yes i don't mind admitting it i am something of a newcomer to all this lark and as far as the Beatles are concerned, I am aware of their work. I haven't ever listened to a Beatles album. I've heard some of their songs when they've appeared on the radio. And I did once get exposure to Magical Mystery Tour. <laughs> you're going to have to watch it again. No, that's not happening. Well, you're going to have to talk about it and I hope your memory's good. Pretty much everything in that hour is stuck in my head. Well, actually, the main thing is... A business about Lennon just shoveling food onto the table <laughs> in the restaurant with a big shovel. I watched this film with Gary. We watched it simultaneously over Skype. And at regular intervals during Hard Day's Night, Gary is going, but how do you get from this to Magical Mystery Tour? What happened in those three years? <laughs> they started believing their own hype, I think. I mean, Gary, you're, what, early 30s? Late 20s, early 30s? I'm actually um, a month away from being 40. (laughs) (laughs) But I wish. I'd like to take your first answer, yes. (laughs) 60. (laughs) You can't have got to this age without absorbing. Even if you've never listened to a Beatles album and you've only heard the singles or whatever, you you can't have helped but absorb 
the sort of the myth. You must know more about the Beatles than you do any other group because you're not a big 60s music fan, are you? But you must know a lot about the Beatles just through cultural references on TV and shows and, and films and things like that. Yeah, I mean, okay, let me give you everything that I knew about the Beatles until, say, well, until really we started doing this, for example. My sort of passing knowledge of the Beatles cribbed from this documentary and that clip show and all that kind of thing is the Beatles, Cavern Club, 1962, Pete Best, then Ringo Starr, and then they made some films, and then Colour arrived, and then they became hippies and started doing a lot of nonsense with gurus and what have you and then they split up and they never reformed that's it my sum total knowledge of them okay what do you mean never reformed who do you think was inside those animal quackers costumes <laughs> <laughs> up to kirkstall every week they were the reason i see magical mystery tour is because it was on bbc hd back in 2012 and everybody on my timeline was tweeting about the documentary that preceded it and so eventually i sort of thought i've got to see what all the fuss is about because everybody's tweeting about this so by the time I arrived on the channel, the documentary was nearly at its conclusion, but the thing itself was coming on. And I thought, okay, what the hell's an hour? I'll have a look at it. What, what harm could it do for an hour? It's not a great introduction to the Beatles. No, that, well, I suppose that's true enough. But thankfully, this on the other hand, this was good fun. And I think that you correctly predicted, both of you, that this is the kind of thing that I was going to enjoy because it's just, you know, silly, farcical film with lots of faces that you can recognise. It's a black and white British comedy post Ealing in that kind of world where British comedy was finding a slightly different voice, you know, kind of post Bolting Brothers making things just a little bit more coarse. If you want to look at this, not as a Beatles film, not as part of their career, but as part of the development of British comedy films, I just started writing down titles like Rattle of a Simple Man, One Way Pendulum, Billy Liar, Heavens Above. But it's still different from all of those as well. It's so fast. It's not encumbered by a plot for a start, really, is it? It's just a day in the life of the, the Beatles as they go by train to a television studio to record a program. It's sort of semi-documentary. And it's like John Lennon says at one point in the film, it's basically we've been in a train and a room and a car and a room and a room and a room and a room. It's that kind of semi-documentary style which works really well. That's one thing that struck me was in this rock and roll pop, they're established. You don't have to explain them. You don't have to introduce that idea as the new thing. And also as a result, there's no MacGuffin. They're not trying to achieve anything. They're just trying to get through the day. There's no prize for them at the end. They're not trying to impress a particular person. They're not trying to win a competition. They're not trying to win anybody over. They're just trying to get things done. Well, that said, there's no romantic subplot, is there? There was a scene with Paul and a girl that got cut. So Paul doesn't actually get his solo. Everybody else, the other three, get their little solo scene where we see what they're really like. Yeah, Paul's quite low-key, or is, is, like you say, he's not as front and centre, certainly, as, as the other three. Certainly, as, I mean, Ringo, really, is the... Everything sort of hangs off Ringo in many ways, I think. So that's another thing that's changed in the makeup of things. There is no central personality. There are four front men in this group, which, of course, allows you to speed up the jokes. There's no recovery time. One makes a joke. He doesn't have to have a little bit of time to refresh his brain for something else. The next one can make a joke. When he's tired, the next one makes a joke. 
I think I mentioned to yourself till whilst we were watching this that my own view was that eventually Lennon would really get in your nerves <laughs> to be honest, <laughs> if you were with him 24-7. I think you could take him in small doses if you encountered him, but yeah. Did you ever see, there's a very famous Beatles appearance on the Morgan and Wise show, late, late 63, and you, you know, it's very funny. And you've got Paul being Paul. Paul's always the kind of the, the diplomat, really. He's the showman. He never really says anything too near the knuckle. And then you've got George, who's kind of sardonic, and you've got Ringo, who's kind of the, the slightly sort of comical figure. And then you've got Lennon. And Lennon on, on the Morgan and Wise show, there's a few little barbed comments, and obviously that you know they're said in jest. But I think in many ways this film is like that Morecambe and Wise appearance sort of stretched to feature length. Yeah, the, the one that's often cited is when Lennon says to Eric Morecambe, it's not like it was in your day. And, and supposedly that, that's like an ad lib of Lennon's or something like that, but I've heard that also being contradicted and, and what have you. And when Lennon then says, oh, you know, my dad used to tell me about you, and he puts out his hand as if to suggest when I was knee high and Morecambe then fires back was only a little fella your dad yeah, and yeah. so that's almost like there's a little bit of sort of dueling going on and you know once one realizes they're not gonna with the other one then they sort of calm down i suppose you could say there's a generation gap there to an extent i think the lesson is is don't go up against eric morcom no matter how supposedly firmed you are for your wits <laughs> so i was looking because i was like how do, how do we talk about this how do we break it down why is this film like this and there just seems to be a number of unique circumstances that allowed this to happen. I watched it on the streaming service Filmstruck, which has lots of extras. There's an interview with Mark Lewis. And one thing he points out is one thing we have to thank for the Beatles is the ending of National Service. Because if National Service had still been a thing, well, George Harrison would have probably been posted out somewhere in the beginning of 64. The whole thing wouldn't have happened. Just... All these things dropping into place. And with this film in particular, Capitol Records in the US, which is a subsidiary of EMI at this point, aren't distributing the Beatles records. They've been licensed out to a couple of other smaller labels. Somebody at United Artists in the UK, branch of the operation, has noticed that whatever happens, the Beatles are not covered for film soundtracks. So this film is actually a loss leader. In the UK, Hard Day's Night came out on Parlophone, but in the US, it came out on United Artists. Ink was dry on that contract before Capital was ordered by EMI. Maybe as a result of this, you are going to take the Beatles. But that makes the film a loss leader. Because that was the talk at the teaser. Never mind about the film. Any money we lose on the film will make back on having that soundtrack album. October 63 is the point when Beatlemania bursts up in Britain. That's, I think, the first time it's used in the headline is October 63. It's round about the London Palladium appearance. Beatlemania. Tastemakers in the States are now aware of this. And this is around about the time that the Sullivan thing is booked. But it then means that United Artists are, right, we need six new songs. Have we got the six new songs? Okay, as long as the film is presentable. It doesn't really matter about the film. So Richard Lester is appointed to direct. This is, what, his second feature after it's Trad Dad? Somebody must have noticed it's Trad Dad and sort of says he can wrangle music. Well, I understood that it was um, Walter Shenson 
who was to produce it uh, had made The Mouse That Roared. Of course, yes. This is his third film, isn't it? Yeah. And Peter Sellers obviously had worked with him on the Running, Jumping and Standing Still film and suggested to Shenson that Dick Lester might be an ideal pick for, for director. So yeah, he'd done The Mouse on the Moon the year before. He then picks Alan Owen because they'd worked together on this one-off show they did for Rediffusion in 1955 that is apparently no longer existing, but apparently wasn't all that good. And I think Alan Owen needs to be picked out more as part of why this film is like it is. Well, he was a Welsh Liverpudlian, wasn't he? From mm-hmm. my research, TV plays uh, mainly. I guess uh, I, he sort of followed the Beatles around a bit, didn't he, in terms of picking up the style of the nuances, the, the way they spoke, kind of tried to get into their heads, I suppose they'd say these days. And he did a pretty good job of knocking together some Beatles dialogue. It's so uncompromisingly Liverpudlian. There was some suggestion from United Artists that maybe the Beatles should be dubbed, but that did not last. That idea was shot down straight away. In a film that's clearly intended for some sort of life in the US, even as a loss leader, it's meant to be exported. Just the number of times Norman Rossington says, come, Ed. (laughs) (laughs) I noticed, by the way, that Alan Owen actually wrote a number of Harkett Barker episodes. So, okay, to what extent then are the Beatles given personalities in this film and to what extent are they writing to their personalities? Let's go back to Morecambe and Wise. It's a bit of an Eddie Braben situation. Owen spent time with them and might write things that crackle a little bit more than they really would in real life, but it's all generally based around what they were really like. None of them are being somebody else. No one's being like an idea of Paul or George or John or Ringo that isn't true. They're all fair reflections of their personalities. It's interesting to compare this with Expresso Bongo. We said Expresso Bongo was a bit of a cake and eating it situation. And this is in that apparently some critics liked the fact that even though it was about the Beatles, it was a satire on Beatlemania. But it's not about them as victims of an oppressive (laughs) system run by hucksters. It just seemed, well, that's how it goes. And yet you've got sequences where characters will run into the Beatles and not recognise them necessarily. You've got Anna Quayle, who thinks she recognises John Lennon and isn't quite sure and then ends up convincing herself that he's not who she thinks he is. Uh, You've got George Harrison being mistaken for an actor auditioning for a TV show and this kind of quite sort of trendy TV producer trying to make sense of him hoping that he's a, an early clue to the new direction. That's the one Gary picked up on as not making any real sense, and you have to allow a lot of suspension of disbelief for that scene. I think you can carry it over in that it's part of the joke is that these people are actually so rarefied. They're so sure that they take the decisions, they haven't actually bothered to engage with the culture they think they're moving. But now nah, it's really just, it's a better scene that way. Is that dig at Kath McGowan in there? When he points to the picture of Susan and says, our resident teenager, and they talk about how she's on TV. Interestingly, the actress was in the disco scene, the one sort of, she's kind of wearing riding boots. I don't think that's actually meant to mean anything. I think my issue with that particular scene was that I could sort of get that the guy at the top of the tree might not recognise him, but I thought, well, the secretary definitely would have, and other people in the office would have as well. So, Gary, obviously, it was the first time you've seen the film. Not a huge... Beatles enthusiast, but 
I guess your immediate in to the film would have been when they, you know, escape the girls on the railway station and get into the compartment and there's very clean old Albert Steptoe set there. He is very clean. Very clean, isn't he? I mean, I yeah, do like that... how even if you've never seen Steptoe, you don't have to understand the gag for it to work as a gag. It's just funny that the fact that everybody points out how clean he is. But yes, so obviously, yeah, Wilfred Bramble. And then I'm starting to recognise people. So I think very early on in that scene, even perhaps before we've seen Wilfred Bramble, we've seen Norman Rossington and we've seen John Junkin. And then in my head, I'm sort of making connections. And I'm also making connections as well with those uh, awful films of the 70s. So Anna Quayle, direct link with Confessions of a Plumber's Mate. We've got John Junkin, who's in Rosie Dixon, Night Nurse, which really is a pit. (laughs) But also Norman Rossington as well. Did you know that Norman Rossington is actually effectively the second coming of Charles Hawtrey? How so? You'll have heard of the famous incident where Charles Hawtrey falls out with Peter Rogers and says to Peter Rogers, I'm going across the road, I'm going to be sitting there with my cup of tea, and when you've changed your mind about giving me top billing, then you can come across and tell me. And of course, Peter Rogers never arrives. And that's Charles Hawtrey done with the carry-ons. Now, that actual incident happened during the recording of Carry On Stuffing in 1972. And it happened so late in the recording that if you open up the Christmas TV Times, There is some artwork of all the people who are going to be in the show, Kenneth Connor and Hattie Jakes and so on, and there's Charles Hawtrey. When you then turn to the listings for the day that Carry On Stuffing is on, Charles Hawtrey has vanished and he's been replaced by Norman (laughs) Washington. So some, we don't don't know where, but somewhere between page 5 and page 42 of the Christmas TV Times, something magical happened. Uh, So Norman Washington, of course, he appears in all manner of things. He's, He's still turning up in things like the 13th Hole with Eric Sykes. He's quite a versatile actor. And he's, he's, he's another one of those supporting actors who's never really given credit. He's a sort of everyman character. Yeah. The last film that I discussed with you guys was The League of Gentlemen. Not that one. And he was in that. He's in an episode of Budgie with a full beard that gives him kind of a Willie Rushton look. I think it's right. The, those two characters, the Shake and Norm, so John Junkin and Norman Rossington, there's some kind of conjecture that Shake is Mal Evans, who was the Beatles' long-term, what would you call him, roadie, gopher, mm. who had been a bouncer outside the cavern, and the Beatles had kind of befriended him. And he, he actually turns up in the film, non-speaking part, but whereas Norm, clearly not meant to be Epstein, is Norm meant to be their manager or road manager, or what is he? He's the authority figure. And one thing I've got here is the principal antagonist I want to say that Wilfred Bramble's just causing trouble in spite of himself. He's not really the principal antagonist. The principal antagonist is actually somebody who's on their side. He's the one who shouts at them most, who pushes them around most. Yeah, I think that's a brick with reality because if you had an Epstein kind of character, it wouldn't be as watchable. It wouldn't move the plot. Again, this is one of the weird little things where lightning has struck in this peculiar way. The fact that they had a manager who was simultaneously savvy and also a bit lax and naive in places. He's not Colonel Tom Parker. No, and I I know there was some theories about he could have made them more money, but I think a more savvy operator would have had even more control. This whole thing about him getting them out the leather jackets and into the suits, it was given to them as an option. It was not an order. They're not being pushed around by a Svengali. He just says, look, if you want to really get the big bookings, wear suits, but it's up to you. I don't think Epstein saw the Beatles as a money-making exercise. I think he just truly, in a platonic way, loved them. Mm. and just wanted them 
to be successful. Whereas, yeah, if it had been a Colonel Parker kind of character, things would have gone in a different direction. The movies would have all been like, help. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I take it you've both seen the Harry and Paul version of the Beatles. They're, they're basically stuck in 1962. And right now I'm picturing John Henshaw in that role, just sort of <laughs> on the run, looking after these pesky kids, trying to get them all in the same place at the same time. <laughs> and of course, Kevin Eldon's superb George Martin, which is, I guess is more George Martin than George Martin himself was. Weird little flash forward when they did the pilot for the monkeys. It tested really badly and they found that editing the manager out of it helped. There's more about that if you want to go over to the sitcom club, also on Podnose. And we talked about the monkeys with Melanie Mitchell. She did a book called Monkey Magic because she had this point that one of the things that really got through to her about the monkeys TV show was the fact that they could just do anything. They were sort of outside the fiction. They could just change costume. Anything could happen. And there's a little bit of that in here. There's a few things that break with reality, like them suddenly being outside the train when they're wanting to annoy Richard Vernon. And then when they're playing cards, suddenly they've got their instruments, they're singing a song, and we cut back and they're playing cards again. Is this some fantasy happening in the minds of one of the schoolgirls? Tyler, did you get a chance to watch It's Trad Dad? I didn't. I didn't have time, unfortunately. There's a lot of that in It's Trad Dad where Derek Geiler is narrating and he's in charge of things. So he just mentions, and then they went to this place. Oh, yeah, but we're not dressed for it. Okay, hang on. And suddenly the lead characters are dressed. There's a bit where they change location and they don't get on a train like in 6-5 Special. The locations change behind them and you actually see the sprocket holes of the film as it's pulled out from behind them and another film is pulled in. No, that, that threw me at first because I didn't recognise it was Derek Geiler. But, of course, I recognised here it was Derek Geiler because he's being Derek Geiler. Isn't his hair terrifying? <laughs> <laughs> what shampoo did he use? What was his hair care routine? Because that is fantastic. Now, see, that's the kind of thing that Lennon should have asked him, being a cheeky young scamp. Lennon does that thing um, that he used to do a lot up until around about 65. That kind of what what how do I put it the the cripple act as he called it the the belming the sticking his tongue under his lower lip and sort of mugging he does a bit of that and that used to be a his kind of go to thing when he wanted to take the mick out of people or whatever um, or to shock people basically he does that with Richard Vernon doesn't he well it wouldn't be an old film if there wasn't one thing in it that you just kind of face part man why did you do that. What was that fella's name on the train in the 6-5 special? Finley Curry? There you go. So who do we think was the more likely older chap on a train that you would encounter? Finley Curry with his uh, sort of long form but slightly confused monologue or Richard Vernon just thinking or oh, hoodlums? Well, that's why I talked about Finley Curry when we did 6-5 special because I thought it was an interesting pre-echo of that scene but completely different. They are very careful that Richard Vernon starts it. It says in the thing, reserved. Nobody brings that up. Nobody brings up the fact that the seats are reserved. He doesn't say, I, I think you'll find this cabin is reserved and you should get out. And they don't mention to him, well, you just came in here, so that's peculiar. But yeah, he closes the window. That's the thing that really starts it off. He closes the window without mentioning it to them. Without He's determined that he's going to kick off. He's, he's going to start something. He's got some sort of animus against all youth. 
Yeah, and you know that he's you, you absolutely predicted that he's going to say, I fought the war for people like you. But he does become the head of the Bank of England some 20-odd years later, so, you know, I'll work it out. I'm referencing, yes, Prime Minister, obviously. Yes, but he doesn't learn his lesson, and, of course, in Sammy's super T-shirt, he could have made a fortune if he'd just been nice to Sammy. <laughs> in what a crazy world. They would have just started raining blows down on him, wouldn't they, before he'd said anything? <laughs> Whereas the bloke in charge of the field, you know, fair's fair. Okay, he's a bit gruff, but they shouldn't have been so mean to the guy in charge of the field. <laughs> what? You've been sorry we hurt your field? Yeah. They're in the wrong there. They've been so careful to make sure that we're against Vernon because he's being bad, but they're we're just supposed to be against that field man because he's against the Beatles. So should Fieldman have been Roy Kinnear in Egghead's Robot. Uh, no, he should have been Freddie Jones in Mr. Horatio Nibbles. Now, you know that I've got the idea in my head now that there could have been a Beatles reunion in a children's film foundation piece in, say, I don't know, 1975? I'm not saying anything because there are things that we can say, but that's for a different podcast. You sent me a photograph the other day of an almost Beatles reunion with an unusual fourth member. Um, Yeah, I think it's Eric Clapton's wedding and there's Paul, George, Ringo and Lonnie Donegan. And that's 1979, and John Lennon wasn't there because he wasn't invited. He wasn't invited because it was thought he wouldn't come, and he said if he'd been invited, he would have gone. Oh. So we could have had a picture with all four Beatles and Lonnie Donegan. And of course, there was that episode of High Summer as well, when none of them were invited, but they all said, <laughs> if we'd been asked, yeah, of course. Talking now about mean adults, how do we feel about Victor Spinetti? Does he have a point? He's got the hairiest jumper in Christendom. <laughs> I think he was hired and Richard Lester said, you're playing me, basically. Well, he obviously worked, he, he obviously worked well, got on well with them because he was in every subsequent Beatles film apart from... Well, George had said to him, I think we're going to have to have you in all our films because my man fancies you. <laughs> <laughs> great hair as well. He's got great hair. He ended up having to... He'd do one-man shows, and girls would turn up, wanted to hear about the Beatles, and he would have to say at the beginning, look, this show's for the people who want to know about my career, so when it's over, come back, and we'll have a bit of Beatle time. So he would then give a little separate lecture afterwards about what it's like working with the Beatles. He, and I know he explained their personalities in terms of them visiting him in hospital when he was sick. I think he says Paul comes in and asks how he is and says, you okay? Yeah, fine. Thumbs up, out. And John comes in and goes, aha, we have you. We will get the answers. Goose steps up and down and then goes. And I can't remember what he says about Ringo. And I think George pokes his head around and says, I won't, I won't come in. It might be catching. It's <laughs> about right. The only performance I really liked in Magical Mystery Tour was Spinetti's, even though it was very over the top. But he's always good value. Thinking about the performances, this film was almost shot in sequence. I think the first line we hear Ringo deliver is it's something about his granddad can speak, Paul's granddad can speak, and he goes, well, with your granddad, no telling ha ha ha. Really bad line read. It's like he's having a really bad first day. That's why Andy White ended up doing the drums on Love Me Do, apparently, because the first day in the studio with Ringo, they said he went a bit mad. You need to give Ringo a few days to kind of relax. Well, get him hungover. That's 
the sequence everybody supposedly singled out when this came out was the one where he was actually genuinely hungover and miserable. Was that with Get Summons David Jansen? Yes, David Jansen from Keeping Up Appearances. Tyler? And here, Flick. That's it, yes. So for those of you with your David Jensen bingo cards, you should all be shouting house right now. You see, while they're all cheeky and answering back, I don't know, you, you know that George is going to be the one who's real trouble. There's just something about George that says, I'm going to be the one who prevents Carnival of Light coming out on Anthology 2. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, see, I have no idea what that means, but that was definitely the vibe that I was getting. <laughs> George had this weird thing that, he seemed to have been the most sour about being in the Beatles and yet also the most eager to jump back to it. I think on two separate occasions he put on his Sergeant Pepper uniform for a promo video film thing. He's the one who did When We Was Fab. I think George got bored after he discovered the sitar. He started to get bored with it, didn't he? I think once he's writing songs of a certain quality and realises that in any other band... He would be the king able to write some of these songs, but he's in the Beatles! <laughs> it's like being six foot two, but being in the Harlem Globetrotters and being three inches shorter. <laughs> and how do you, sorry, get him back to Wilfred? What did you think of his performance? Obviously, he's playing, I guess, the, the antithesis of Albert Steptoe. He's Irish Republican, and Steptoe was a Staunch Tory. That was quite surprising. I'd forgotten about that bit. I said to Gary, I said, five years later, this would not have been in a comedy film, A Nation Once Again. No, he's good fun. I think that he, I mean, even just two years into Step 2, I think that he, it comes across that he enjoys the chance of playing someone who isn't Albert Step 2. And unfortunately, you know, the, the number of instances that he gets to do that sort of decreases over the years. The same with Harold, of course, and H. Carbett. I have been getting mixed up in my mind over the past week between Wilfred Bramble in Hard Day's Night and Wilfred Bramble in Holiday on the Buses. And at one point I thought, who was it he was giving the V sign to? And then realised <laughs> it was Blakey. And so that didn't happen in this. I think Wilfred Bramble's kind of there as a bit of an insurance policy as well. If the Beatles turned out to have been worse than they were at acting. You have somebody who's seasoned, who's good at comedy. And also, the thing I've got here, John Junkin is the dope. Going to the monkeys again, looking at the auditions, they'd already decided that one of the monkeys was going to be the stupid one. In the end, that fell to Peter. But in this, there is no stupid beetle. The jokes you would give to a stupid beetle are actually given to John Junkin. And I think there was a great deal of ad-libbing, but there was a loose way of shooting this film. Like, the press conference is simply because they couldn't get to a particular location. I think it was the Screaming Girls had kind of got them surrounded. So, press conference, right, we can do some scenes here, and we can do a scene here with cameras in shot. With a reason, let's just bring a bunch of actors in, and there's another film in here that's not been made. The film where the Beatles are actually pretty terrible. And we'll have a lot more Norman Rossington, a lot more John Junkin, and a lot more Wilfred Bramble. Certain roles have been given to people. The Beatles don't move the plot themselves. I mean, the, the nearest thing to a plot is Ringo quits, and Ringo quits because of Wilfred Bramble stirring it. Bramble was filling his head with notions, wasn't he? But I think that's another reason why there isn't much plot. It's like, we don't know what they're going to be like when the cameras start rolling. 
we might not be able to depend on them to play a particular mood convincingly. Was the lack of plot largely because they're thinking of the target audience and thinking all they want is a little bit of dialogue to move on to the next song? See, the thing is, it's not a film that you would automatically peg as a film for teenage girls or whatever, because you've got Wilfred Bramble, you've got some good comedy performances. I mean, it's not like Help, which obviously came next, which was quite convoluted. That is the film you would expect, isn't it? Help. I think there are certain things happening. Like I said, every time I look at this, there just seems to have been a set of circumstances that most of the time would not have happened. There seem to be a number of million to one chances. So I think it's partially because we have Richard Lester, who is now onto his third feature film, is confident in his powers and is also allowed to get on with it because United Artists are not looking over his shoulder because United Artists are not that interested in the film. We've got Alan Owen. I'll just say that again, Alan Owen, because I'm not sure his name comes up quite enough when this film's being talked about, Alan Owen. So it's a Richard Lester film. It's an Alan Owen film, as much as it's a Beatles film. And as it happens, all three of these entities have their heads in the same sort of space. They're all generally wanting to say the same kinds of things, and nobody is stopping them. And just in case one person doesn't do their job well enough, something can happen that will carry it along. So the Beatles are ring-fenced with really capable actors, capable actors who also have just enough name recognition, just in case the Beatles thing does fizzle out by December 63, and he's stuck with this thing in the summer of 64, you can put it out with Wilfred Bramble and Victor Spinetti and Norman Rossington in Hard Day's Night featuring the Beatles. You quite often get sitcoms which are a vehicle for a stand-up comic, and they tend to then be surrounded by actors. So if the stand-up comic is, is perhaps new to the acting scene, then they've got people around them to do the heavy lifting, effectively. Yeah, I mean, this is completely getting away from comedy, but there's a film called Barry Lyndon. Mm, yes, I've just seen a clip of that on YouTube. Which I really love. It's a great film, and it's got some fantastic actors, character actors in it, Leonard Rossiter, notably. But the lead is uh, Ryan O'Neill, and Ryan O'Neill is just like an empty vessel in this film. And the film is, you know, he's the titular character, but he's really like a cipher. The film works because of the cast around him doing all the heavy lifting. And he just has to kind of just deliver his lines with as much effort as he can. And, and that's it. So it is saved by the supporting characters. Yes, a, a week clip of that popped up on my YouTube the other week. And it was John LeMessure. And he was effectively taking part in a game show to, to try and get citizenship of Australia, oh, I think it was. Am I getting mixed up with something Yes, else? you are. You're talking about oh. Barry McKenzie. Barry oh, okay. McKenzie and Barry Lyndon are very, very <laughs> different films. And I think, I think I'm think i right in saying, though I don't actually have the IMDb entry in front of me, I think I'm right in saying that Barry McKenzie was not directed by Stanley Kubrick. <laughs> Please correct me if I'm wrong. I don't think Ryan O'Neill was in it either. But I think Barry McKenzie wasn't directed. <laughs> I was quite impressed when Tyler, when you said, yeah, I really like that film, because I was thinking, well, the reviews I've seen of it were... <laughs> okay, well, rapidly getting back to Hard Day's Night, before I embarrass myself any further, we had a lot of uncredited names in this, because, you know, I like spotting people, I like spotting faces in these films, and there are a lot of people in this that you recognise who aren't credited. Just to give a few examples, Marianne Stone, who quite often appears in Carry Ons, 
Gordon Rawlings, Man with Sandwich in Pub, Charlotte Rampling, Girl at Disco, Margaret Nolan is Grandfather's Girl at Casino, Derek Nimmo is in there, we've got Jeremy Lloyd, Tall Dancer at the Disco, uh, Richard Lester himself, Man at the Back of the Stage, we've got Julian Holloway, who appeared very briefly, Bob Godfrey is in the pub. Yes, that's the name that really jumped out at me. Huh? Isla Blair as well. Uh, and of course, the uncredited car thief, John Bluthel. And finally, seated fan with necktie. Who wants to field that one? Phil Collins. There you go. He presented a documentary about Hard Day's Night on the grounds that he's in it. Oh, I didn't recognise Sheila Phil. Yeah, and, and, and Formal. And, and Robin Ray is the floor yeah. manager. That's right, yes. Yeah, he is credited, yes. Yeah. It is mentioned by Clement Olafrenet about when they got Sheila Fern for the Likely Lads that the things that they liked about her, was like one of the things was that she was friends with John Lennon. Why didn't he have to visit the set of Happy Days? Why, did, why didn't John Lennon visit the set of George and Mildred? <laughs> <laughs> right, hang on. I've got the perfect place for them to have the reunion. The 321 Christmas special, 1979, because who's on it as well? Wilford Bramble's on it. There you go. They could have had a hard day's night reunion. Is that when he did the Christmas Carol parody? Yes, what I consider to be the most faithful (laughs) adaptation of the story. The Likely Lads. This is anticipating the Likely Lads as well, isn't it? Yeah, I guess it is. Yes, yeah. I mean, imagining a world with no Beatles in it, would this kind of thing have happened anyway? I was reading a thing about the British New Wave films, and it counted Hard Day's Night as being the end. But I don't think it's the first film of what comes after the British New Wave. I think it's one of the last British New Wave films. I think it fits in much more with the stuff before it than the stuff after it. I mentioned this before, didn't I? But um, on a different show, BBC4 doing that thing, 1960, the year of the North. Things are already heading that way. Working class people are coming down from the north and showing London how it's done. Did that pave the way in in any way for the public's accepting of the Beatles? It fits in, like I said about as well, that you don't really have to explain what a pop star is or how a pop star works or what they're meant to do. This just starts with, these are the Beatles, you know they're famous and you know girls love them. We don't have to have a scene that stops to examine this. Tyler, I want to ask yourself the same question that I threw to Tilt in one of our previous recordings. I'll ask yourself the same Tilt because I'm not sure if I've actually made the final cut. When I was watching the 50s and then the 60s films, and knowing that we were going to watch Hard Day's Night, I was thinking, what is it about the Beatles that makes them, going to sound daft, it makes them the Beatles? I mean, you've got plenty of pop groups by this point. What is it about the Beatles that, that sends them into the stratosphere? And I think actually, Till, you just said something there earlier on about the end of conscription. So I think that that might, in a way, have something to do with it because you've got perhaps like the, the age is just ever so slightly younger of the stars. So that might explain it to, to some degree, but also, Tyler, what, what, what's your thought? What, why, why are the Beatles becoming just so huge as it is? I would say breezy confidence, very confident, very funny as well. In the early days, Lennon was the sort of de facto leader if you like but still there's no a lead singer and his backing band it's like four distinct personalities you've got each of them playing off each other you see them on things like the Morecambe and Wise show you see them in 
Mike and Bernie Winter Show or any sort of appearances, they're very quick, they're very clever, very witty. They never rely on past glories as well. They're always changing. Okay, this doesn't become so evident in the early days, but with each album, each subsequent album, they're always trying something different. They're not just like, you know, I don't know, Freddie and the Dreamers and just doing the same thing. Hey! (laughs) (laughs) If you'd watched all of those ATV Morecambe Wises, you would have seen Freddie and the Dreamers doing Brown and Porter's Meat Exporter's Lorry, and that is a fantastic (laughs) song. And I will not hear a word said against Oliver in the Overworld. They were very talented, but they were also very lucky. And I think in terms of their success in the States, a hell of a lot of that came about because of timing, really. Kennedy had been assassinated. Their records were getting a lot of Christmas play in 63 when there wasn't a lot of other stuff happening and there were like kids off school with disposable income and bored and it was just the right time for them really. I read something the other day that quoted, I think it was Ernest Hemingway talking about bankruptcy. It's first, it's gradual and then it's rapid. And as I was going back into the history of this film, just thinking of where the Beatles were in October 63 when this contract is written up there's still something that's happening in britain and gary and i once it was on our likely lads podcast we had this little fantasy about the idea where the beatles are sufficiently small enough that they end up with their own sitcom in 1963 and i mocked up a little uh, radio times description and we decided that um, their antagonist would be john thor as a character called frankie who was a bit of a hard case, but he was kind of like Marty Wilde in What a Crazy World. He was always causing trouble for them because he hated them. And so October 63, when this film is conceptualised, I think it came out July in the UK and August in the US. And just between that time, boom, so many little things have flared up. It's interesting mentioning the Kennedy assassination. The Kennedy assassination, in some ways, could be said to have delayed the Beatles breaking America. So sometime in October, CBS's London office is sent out to take some film and look at this thing that's happening. And it's a news item on the morning news about what's happening in Britain to really understand it. And it was going to be on the evening's news, but it was the morning's news of November 22nd, 1963. So it got booted. But then it is shown on CBS Evening News on December 10th. And I've seen someone say that Cronkite actually thought, maybe now is the time to show this. Maybe people need something happy. And happy news wasn't really coming out of the US at that moment. And I know some people have said that February 1964, the Sullivan appearance, they're already becoming a phenomenon in the US. And Paul is talking out of his hat when he said that they wouldn't go to the US until they'd had their number one single. There was a lot of hard work getting them that number one single. And the Sullivan thing was already committed to before that happened. But I know some people said it was permission to be happy again. Because they'd come from outside, they didn't have to be in mourning. So it was okay. The 60s can now resume for the US. The period of mourning is officially over, November to February, and that's it. And of course, there's that thing about Jack Parr claimed that he was the first to actually show the Beatles on US TV. And I've actually seen some debate about whether he was the first, but not in the way he cited, that he might have actually had 
footage he was less aware of earlier that was taken by his daughter. But he did show some footage of the Beatles. It wouldn't have been The Tonight Show. Would it? Yes, it would have been The Tonight Show. When did Carson take over on The Tonight Show? Uh, 62, wasn't it? Right, so it would have been on his own show. But he's showing that as a mocking thing. Look at this. Look at what the British are doing. Pfft, what's all that about? I'm sure he said something far weird to the, what's all that about? It's... <laughs> Jack Parr, is he the kind of quite withering intellectual, fancies himself as a bit of an intellectual, failed? I'm not saying that he was wrong to have taken that tack or that even if he was wrong, it was natural. He was not being unreasonably catty about the Beatles. It would, I suppose, look odd from the outside. I was just mentioning that that's the tack he took because it's isolated over there. So, yeah, there's just that extraordinary toppling of dominoes between October and then March when they start filming. So they start filming after they've done Sullivan and presumably there's some buzz already about this is not going to be a loss leader for a soundtrack album. This could be a big hit on its own. It had half a million advance um, orders in the States, you know, the, the soundtrack album before it was released. And I think the film made about six million in the US in its first six weeks or something ridiculous like that. I don't know if that's accurate or how accurate that is, but that's something it's I a read. story Richard Dawson told about Hogan's Heroes. I don't know if the dates necessarily line up. But his English character, he wanted to play as a scouser because he, the whole idea was he was a bit fly and was told by the producer, no, nobody's going to understand that. And then a couple of days later, he said, did you see the queue outside that cinema the other day? He said, yeah, he said, that was for guys with Liverpudlian accents. I think they'd already started shooting and he'd done it more cockney by that point. But he said, look, because when we talk about the Beatles cartoon, <laughs> That idea that for some reason people would not understand the accents of the most famous people in the world at that time still prevailed in some quarters. Well, is this why the Vultures and the Jungle Book had kind of weird, strangulated, hybrid British accents? That was meant to be the Beatles doing the voices. And things just didn't line up. What I mean is, why didn't they, yes. why didn't they just get three or four people who could do Liverpudlian accents and get them to do the Vultures? Well, I think there's Chad of Chad and Jeremy. That's one thing we really have to blame the Beatles for, is it's partially their fault that there are a number of people in the US who think they can do what they call a British accent, or what they call a British accent. I'd be terribly sneering, aren't I? But, and can't, because they're trying to sound like Cockneys and Scousers at the same time. So I once saw a review of Sharp, I think it was on Netflix, and somebody said, oh, the only problem was I couldn't understand Sean Bean's Cockney accent. Oh! <laughs> Do we want to mention the yellow teddy bears? No. No? Okay. Because one idea that we were floating around was, shall we do a podcast about the films that the Beatles didn't make? And then I found out there's a podcast called Something About the Beatles. And thanks to Mike for sending me that message about their Magical Mystery Tour one. I'll listen to it and make sure we don't duplicate it. They did a show about films that the Beatles didn't make. I listened to it and I thought, there's a bit of room here, because we're actually going to watch The Yellow Teddy Bears and do much more of a breakdown of the film. I think we can still get away with that. So, I've got a couple of daft ideas running around in my head about the television premiere of A Hard Day's Night. So... 
chaps, is there any definitive answer as to when the Beatles broke up? So it was definitely 70. Why have I got early 71 stuck in my head for some bizarre reason? I don't know, but what happened was Paul sued the other three to dissolve their agreement. And why the Beatles broke up and who was in the right and who was in the wrong is a very complicated question. Well, it kind of annoyed Lennon because I think Lennon wanted to be the first one to leave or to. He wanted to be the one to break up the Beatles, wasn't he? Well, supposedly he had, and it was agreed that they'd keep it under wraps for a while, while while Let It Be went round the houses and things like that. So, again, there was this feeling that Paul had made it about him. That's the way some people want to look at it. I'm not taking sides. I blame Gary for the Beatles breaking up. Mm -hmm. Me too. I mean, I don't disagree, but how so? I just find it easier to blame you for everything. Yeah, I'll go with that. The reason I asked that was because, as far as I can tell from looking at the lovely Genome website, the television premiere of A Hard Day's Night was actually Christmas 1970. Okay. That, that's six years. That's about the, the normal length of time from a film to get to cinema to TV around about that time. And does that detract from your enjoyment of it then? If you've never seen it and it turns up as part of your holiday view and there's the fact that the Beatles have already gone through all the different phases and then packed it in by this point. The Beatles split was definitive, now we know. But I was just watching a laugh-in the other day and they actually say, have the Beatles split, is this the end? While all four of them were still around, there was always that possibility. And it always seemed that the possibility of a... Beatles reunion, two and a half of them would be enthusiastic at any one time. And that's really why it never happened. The best time for it to have happened, and it didn't, but it came close. Well, it came close in the sense that I think it came close to the four of them being in the same room together, was the period of about, was it 18 months, the lost, the lost weekend, when Lennon and Yoko were separated. It was about 74, 75, and Lennon was pretty much going on a, he was on a bender with Harry Nilsson and people like that, but he was he wasn't under the influence of Yoko, and he was more amenable because if you listen to a lot of interviews or read a lot of interviews with Lennon in the seventies, he could be very scathing about the Beatles, very scathing in particular about George Harrison often. But then there'd be other interviews where he would be more sort of nostalgic, almost. And if you look at the dates, if you look at the circumstances, very often the times when he was more nostalgic and more sort of open to the idea of perhaps the Beatles doing something again together were the interviews when Yoko wasn't present. Isn't there a whistle test interview where he he says, if we get together and it works, we'll do it. And of course, that's his big making up with Paul is in 74 and that jam session. And after that, they are back on talking terms and th there's a few in-person visits. I know there's a point when John had to tell Paul stop turning up and some people have said that this was another break i don't know if it was a an interview i've seen heard or read where he says yeah that what i was actually saying was i've got a kid and you can't just turn up i didn't say don't talk to me again well do you want to talk about this rumored memo to john lennon's lawyers where supposedly it's in 1980 and the beatles as a corporate entity are looking at taking legal action against a show called beatlemania not the Beatles, but an incredible simulation. Somebody's doing the tribute band thing before the tribute band thing is a recognized phenomenon. And there is some discussion about whether this should happen. And I read it in a book that supposedly there's a 
memo from Lennon who says, I will talk to the others about maybe doing some shows to strengthen our position. It does tend to be a thing that gets bands back together. Is Let's get back together to strengthen our position in a legal case. Yeah, and also by that time, I don't think George had a record deal. Ringo, I don't think he had a record deal. Or at least they'd, they'd had their last few releases had been pretty poorly received. Okay, so yeah, I mean, around around late 70s, early 80s, uh, early 80, I think at that time, George Harrison was maybe between record labels. I think Ringo, I think one of his albums possibly hadn't even been released because it was considered unfit, or certainly that that had poorly received LPs that had been out in, towards the end of the decade. I think George Harrison in the early 70s had been very successful, and many people had said he was the most successful Beatle in terms of sort of musical direction he was taking. But I think possibly, you know, had John lived, you know, certainly within the first few years of the 80s, I'm sure that they would have been more willing perhaps to get back together and see if they could uh, make some records together. I just want to go back to that Radio Times listing for a moment. Just just one thing to just throw out there, not really going anywhere, but just as a just something I've spotted. I, if I'm right in thinking that this is a premiere, 28th of December 1970, at five past four in the afternoon, I'm thinking, okay, it is still the holiday period, but it's not exactly a plum slot. It's not after the Queen on Christmas Day. And I'm thinking perhaps this is because it's in black and white. This is only the second colour Christmas on television. And I'm thinking that perhaps there's a bit of a mindset there that they don't want a black and white feature on one of the main days. That had occurred to me that there's also an element of let's show this while we can, because maybe this time next year, colour uptake will have really rocketed. It's not like ITV's going to have a strike where they start showing stuff in black and white again is it just to quote the listing says here the beatles first and best feature film is a way out journey from liverpool to london so and so on what do we think of that statement uncontroversial i can't comment on that because it's certainly the first and it is the best so you you would agree then this is the best of the beatles films did you want a bit of conflict there no no that no no, that's (laughs) fine If you want to give reasons why, that's that's okay. If you can actually prove that it wasn't the first. <laughs> no, I wasn't challenging that bit. That bit's safe. You'll never guess what they found. Kaleidoscopes just suddenly dug this out of Bob Monkhouse's <laughs> archive or something like that. Apparently Peter Sellers went round one day with his 60mm <laughs> and actually made a film. Wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, it's not that far-fetched. Yeah. <laughs> the question is, am I going to enjoy the cartoons? We'll talk about the Beatles cartoon when we do the Beatles cartoon, because we are. We're going to do that, and we're going to watch the other narrative films. We're not going to do Let It Be. What's wrong with Let It Be? What's what's that? It's a documentary about four people who don't get on anymore, who are trying to do something and fail to do it. This is not easily available in this film. Except for all the Beatles... Films were available on Blu-ray and 4K and everything else. They're embarrassed by it. I don't know when it might come out because there's just this faint feeling that it shows them in a poor light. Peter Sellers did turn up to chat about drugs. Was it around? Because it was around this time that he was filming The Magic Christian in London with Ringo. So I th- I'm not sure if it was during Let It Be or it might have been Abbey Road. Ringo was in hot demand at the time. Why have I never seen The Magic Christian, despite having once owned a VHS of it? Well, you've owned a VHS, but never watched it. It's got so many stars. It's got so many sitcom actors in it. Jimmy Clitheroe. Your Brenner in a dress. Chapman and Cleese. 
Milligan. Christopher Lee. Uh, what's his name? Wilfred Hyde White. It's a bit of a mess of a film, but it's quite entertaining. You see, Gary, when you say, how did they end up doing Magical Mystery Tour? There came a point in the 60s when everybody was doing Magical Mystery Tour. Have you seen Modesty Blaze? No, no. Casino Royale? That's a Magical Mystery Tour. Yeah, that is. That really is. There came a point when the entire 1960s started to believe its own hype. And I kind of like those films. There was a review of Casino Royale that said, this is the worst film I ever enjoyed. (laughs) (laughs) So we're still in the early to mid-60s, though. So let's be sure to reset our mindset. Because the Beatles have now come and shaken everything up. Let's see what fizzes out of the British pop movie. Tyler is staying with us for a week. And we're going to watch three more British pop films and see what they're like. And one of them is really interesting. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Look, it's got Kenneth Connor in it. I'm expecting it to be exactly like a carry-on. Kenneth Connor quoting Norman Vaughan. <laughs> Frank Thornton, who's in every 60s film, isn't he? Well, but he wasn't in Hard Day's Night, bizarre. Oh, no, he wasn't. What's that all about? Well, can we say then that the worst thing about Hard Day's Night, as much as we like Derek Guiler, that desk sergeant should have been David Lodge. Oh, David Lodge. (laughs) (laughs) And then we could have made the Sergeant Brown trilogy a tetralogy. It would mean that Hard Day's Night takes place in the same universe as Horatio Nibble. (laughs) (laughs) So, Gary, can you give everybody chapter and verse on where to look for more stuff? About us and things. Well, if you want to get in touch with ourselves, you can tweet us at Jaffas for Proust. I'm at Lapsed Cat. Hey. And you can hear all the previous Jaffa Kicks for Proust at podnose.com, where you also can find all the previous sitcom club shows as well. And you can also find us on Facebook, Jaffa Kicks for Proust. So we're still rocking next week. And thank you for listening to Jaffa Kicks for Proust. <laughs>